0: Good evening church, if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. We have a long passage starting in verse 20 of that chapter going all the way through the end of 7 tonight. One of the benefits of preaching the way that we do, which is to pick a book of the, a book of the Bible and just move passage by passage, is that we end up emphasizing what God wants us to emphasize in his word. And so you'll see the the title of the sermon tonight. And you may be wondering, well, haven't we already covered this in Proverbs so far? And uh, if you're wondering that, you'd be right. In fact, nearly one third of the first nine chapters of Proverbs deals with sexuality in some way. And so from the very start, we make this observation that this is something that is important to God. This is something that God wants to address that he knew would be an issue for us. And so he gave us much wisdom to glean here about this topic. And so if God is not shying away from addressing this, then neither should we. The other thing I want to address before we read this passage is something that could prove to be uh, perhaps a barrier for you or for somebody that you know. Uh, to really hear and respond to this text. If you'll look with me quickly at verse 24 of chapter 6, we hear the Father say to His Son uh, that this wisdom I'm teaching you is to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. And we're going to hear that language throughout the entirety of the passage. And we've heard it already in another place in Proverbs. And that language certainly seems to have somewhat of a misogynistic tone to it. Um, And there's other places in Scripture that would seem the same. It seems to affirm some of the notions that we hear from skeptics and critics of the Bible and Christianity. That that the Bible and Christianity are, after all, a, a man's religion, misogynistic in many ways. And I also want to acknowledge the fact that there have been those throughout church history who have misused this purpose for uh, this passage for that very purpose. But I say misused because uh, that is not the way that this text is to be taught. I want to give you just a, a couple of reasons to show you that. One is something that we've learned from studying Proverbs so far is that the writer likes to use different literary devices, So if we were to flip over to chapter 8, verse 1, we're going to hear a familiar voice. It's the voice of Lady Wisdom. And we'll meet her again in chapter 31. And so far from denigrating women, actually the author is giving us a contrasting picture of Lady Wisdom and Lady Adultery, who personify wisdom and folly, respectively. More than that, uh, if, if, this were, if the image were switched instead of a, fa- a father teaching a son, if it was a mother teaching a daughter, uh, she'd be warning her daughter against the evil of the evil man. And, and then finally, moreover, I just want to impress one more to bring this point home is that uh, you'll notice in the first verse of our passage that part of the teaching that the son is urged not to forsake is his mother's teaching. So it's clear to us that this wisdom is being taught equally to both men and women. And so as hearers tonight, both men and women, we can hear this as an instruction, a warning to us to resist sexual temptation. Okay, so having set the, the text in its proper context and, and shown that the Lord wants to emphasize this to us, let's go to the text and learn wisdom about how to resist sexual temptation Starting in chapter 6, verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steal, steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman. From the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward, her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and in every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now now I have come out to meet you. I seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Lord Jesus, we ask, would you give us understanding and right application of your word this evening. Would you capture our affections and turn them to you as one who loved us first? And would you empower our wills to resist that which is not made for us and to follow in the path of wisdom that you hold out to us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone has said that there comes a point... Where we need to stop pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. The author of this passage of Proverbs says that he has seen men and women fall victim to sexual temptation. He says he has seen many of them, such that they constitute a mighty throng. Many have fallen into the river, so to speak. And as he looks around and observes why this might be, why they're falling in in the first place, he doesn't primarily attribute it to the culture around them. He doesn't even primarily attribute it to the temptation of other people. No, the author of Proverbs looks primarily at the heart. You'll notice at the beginning, the middle, and the end of this long passage, The father's instruction to his son is to keep your heart from falling in to this sin. And we've already seen this instruction in chapter 4, verse 23, which urges us to keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the streams of life. Now, it seems to me that when we speak about the heart in our common parlance We most often are referring to, um, you might say, the emotions or our affections. But when the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, refers to the heart, it's a much more comprehensive kind of term. It sums up what you'll see there in your outline, our mind, our emotions or affections, and our will. Our mind, our affections, and our will. And as an expert teacher that we know is ultimately Jesus Christ. This father to a son engages both the mind, the affections, and the will in this passage. He reasons with us intellectually. He engages our affections with an illustration. And then he urges us in the final, in the closing, now and now, my son, listen, be attentive to my words. So, If we are to be those who follow in the path of wisdom rather than folly, we must be those who keep our hearts by the word of God, he says. I know that that sounds maybe insultingly um, uh, simplistic, but what we'll find as we engage the mind, the emotions, and the will is how they all work in concert with each other. And also what we'll find is that our hearts are being kept by Christ himself. So let's go and learn this wisdom from the teacher here. The first thing he says is that we must renew our minds by meditating on God's word. There's this repeated injunction at the beginning of the passage where he says, keep my commandments, don't forsake your mother's teaching. This is a a call to a, a lifelong commitment to the wisdom, the teaching of God's word that we've learned in the home. And so it's an application for, for all of us who teach, really, but especially parents, to teach our children the positive biblical vision of sexuality that, that Scripture uh, gives us and teaches. Because if we don't, they will certainly learn it somewhere else. So we have this, this call to teach our children very intentionally the positive good news the Bible has for us. He says, bind them on your heart. Now, we know you can't literally bind something to your heart, so it's a metaphor for meditation on God's Word. That's more than a a reading, just to keep progress on our reading plan, but it's a a reading, a rereading, and asking questions, meditating, and, and asking, how would my life look different if this were true of me? If I really comprehensively applied this, to my life. If I ordered my life, not just technically to follow this word, but such that it was totally guided by this word. So meditating on God's word. And when we do, he says, we will see clearly. When we meditate on God's word, we're able to see clearly. He says, the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. The reason I think that this is so important for us, because I think that more than any other sin that we uh, come in contact with or uh, resist, we think that God is out to rob us of joy when it comes to sexuality, more than any other sin that we might deal with in life. We think that God is robbing our joy, holding out on us when it comes to sexuality, And so when we meditate on God's Word, it is like a light to our path that shows us the good news, the beauty of the positive biblical vision for sexuality such that when any temptation comes our way, any distortion comes our way, we're able to see it almost reflexively. And that's the place that the teacher goes next. He says, as you have renewed your mind resist because of all these different reasons. The first is a command. It says, do not desire her beauty in your heart. That word desire could just as easily be translated as lust. And so if we take this in conjunction with Matthew 5 and Jesus teaching there, where Jesus says, anyone who even looks lustfully at a woman has committed adultery we see that this is not just addressing the sin of adultery, but all kinds of sexual temptation. The Shorter Catechism says about this, the seventh commandment, that is, do not commit adultery, that it forbids thinking, saying, or doing anything sexually impure. And the reason for that, he says, is that lust is just one step removed from the action that it envisions. Lust is just one step removed from the action that it envisions. He illustrates that by saying, can you hold fire next to your chest and not burn your clothes? Can you walk on hot coals and not scorch your feet? Do not play around with sexual temptation. He says, don't ask the question, how far is too far? How much can I get away with? That question is to court destruction. Be vigilant with the technology, the technology that you use, knowing that those who design it gain their income from clicks. And so they have designed their technology to gain more clicks. They throw out clickbait, and they know the quickest way to get somebody to, to click is to sexualize something, either with an image or with a headline. Don't play around with sexual temptation. And here's why he lists off in rapid order all these reasons why it is just totally futile. He says the benefits are temporary. It's like a loaf of bread. It's like one meal. It's just satisfaction that is momentary with disproportionate destruction to follow. It's costly. He says he will give all the goods of his house. One writer says, when you obey God, you will experience blessings that you did not work for. But when you disobey him, even what you have worked for, We'll go to another. We see that played out in the New Testament teaching on marriage, don't we? That the man and the wife are to love their spouse as they love their own flesh. There is this counterintuitive gospel logic that to love and to serve and to give ourselves to another actually ends up benefiting ourselves. And what he's saying is that the inverse is also true. That if we pursue our own selfish gratification at the expense of others, we will receive disproportionate negative consequences to follow. Finally, he just gets right to the point and lays it out for his son. He says, it's stupid. The one who does this lacks sense. It's an interesting way that he communicates this point, though. Because in this part of our passage in chapter 6, he begins in the second person. He's talking face-to-face with his son. And in the middle, he backs up into the third person. And what I think the implication, the importance of that is, is that when we are uh, being tempted, when we are lusting, our vision is clouded and we can't think clearly. And so what the father is doing here is he's taking his son, he's putting his arm around him, and he's saying, let's step back for a moment. Let's observe the facts. Let's see it for what it really is as you're thinking clearly and see if this makes any sense in the world to do. You get wounds and dishonor. There's ruin of reputation and many other um, destructions that come from this sin of sexual temptation. I realize as we, as we hear that and we meditate on that, that some of us are feeling very acutely the guilt and the shame of falling to sexual temptation in our own lives. Maybe you're stuck in that cycle of sinning and then feeling guilt and shame and then repeating. Maybe you have committed adultery, you have a broken marriage, and you have witnessed firsthand and are witnessing right now the destruction that it, that it wreaks in your life. I want you to notice that there is also a note of redemption here. Look at this image that the Father gives us of the man, the husband, who has been sinned against. He says, jealousy makes a man furious. This is the man who you have cheated on him with his wife. And this man is furious. He says, you can say sorry as much as you want, You can offer him as much money or gifts as you want and nothing will appease his wrath. In fact, in those days, the penalty for adultery was capital punishment. That's likely what this husband is out for. We also know that in Scripture, one of the primary ways that God reveals himself to us is through the relationship of marriage. We've learned in Hosea that God positions himself in that book as the spurned lover, the one who has been cheated on, the one who has been sinned against. And one writer says that rightly understood, the idea of this jealousy is central to any true concept of God. But what we find with God's jealousy is that it does not primarily demonstrate it in condemnation and in judgment, though he does judge sin. But it's primarily demonstrated in redemption. God's jealous love and affection for his people compelled him to come and not to take our life, but to give his own so that we might be his. To give his life so that the just judgment for sin, the destruction that sexual temptation reaps, would fall on Christ and not for us. Jesus said, I came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. He says, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ then, he is a new creation. All of the sexual brokenness and sin of your past is wiped away and you have been made new, a new person in Christ. And after David sinned with Bathsheba, he prays to God and he says... Wash me with hyssop and I will be clean. The jealousy of God issues forth in his redemption of sexually broken people. And if you trust in Christ, that is you. No matter what sin you have committed, no matter what destruction, it's reaped in your life. So we are called to renew our minds. The, 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 heart, the crux of the issue here is that we act contrary to reason far more than we would like to admit don't we Uh, in fact we often change our reasons to fit whatever we're feeling and we want and so that's where the author turns next is to our emotions he calls us first to renew our minds and second to anchor our hearts in god's word You'll see the language kind of repeats itself. It's very similar at the beginning of chapter 7 with a small change. And that is, whereas before it was an intellectual exercise of meditating on God's word, now it's an, an exercise in affection, treasuring up God's word, writing it on the tablets of our hearts. So we might say that just as lust is one step removed from the action that it envisions... Meditating on God's word is one step removed from treasuring it in our hearts. And so anchoring our hearts so that we stand secure and able to resist sexual temptation. He gives us a couple of images to, um, to understand that. First, it's treasure it as the apple of your eye. That's the center part of your eye that we all reflexively protect. And then he also uses this image of bind it on your finger. I'm not sure if this was the image that the original author was going for, but for us, we automatically think of a wedding ring. And the reason that I think that that image is so helpful for us is because a wedding ring has so much to do with our identity. We reflexively protect that which we love, that which is core to our identity. So think about it. If you find much of your self-worth in your Um, in your work ethic or perhaps your political persuasion or or whatever it is, the moment that somebody attacks it, you immediately jump forward to defend it. God is saying, I want you to internalize my word such that it becomes core to who you are. I recently actually lost my wedding ring, uh, momentarily at least. Uh, I was out in the yard Uh, after one of these recent storms and I was picking up leaves and limbs and getting them to the curb. And when I finished, I got back inside and I started washing my hands and I realized that it was gone. And so as I went through the yard and I was combing under every leaf and tearing apart that pile that I had worked to make over a few hours, the phrase that we often say to each other, it's just stuff, lost all meaning to me. Now, it is just stuff. But a wedding ring is much more than just stuff because of what it symbolizes. It says much about who I am as a person. And let's be honest, I'm much better known to you all as Alyssa's husband than as Pastor Josh. A wedding ring says so much about who you are. And God says, I want my word to be internalized in your heart so that you are anchored deeply in that. And the reason is because so much in our modern day especially, we have elevated and idolized sexuality to be one of the primary markers of our identity. And so we are turned and tossed by that, by sexuality, in terms of how we see ourselves. So, as this expert teacher, the father now illustrates the concept he has just uh, reasoned with us and, and taught us in chapter 6. Just listen to this kind of retrospective on the many men he's seen fall. He says he passes along the street near her corner. He's taking the house to her road. He's playing with fire. He's walking on coals. Uh, he's doing this in the twilight in the evening at the time of darkness. He thinks what he can do can be concealed. Uh, it says that she is wily or literally guarded in heart. So you see the contrast that wisdom sheds light on our lives, but Lady Adultery conceals her true intentions. She seizes and kisses him. She breaks down his defenses by physical touch. And then she makes him a promise. Let us take our fill of love until morning. We might justify this by saying, I've worked hard. Life is tough. Life is short. I deserve to feel good every now and then. And then she promises that there will be no consequences. My husband, is not at home. We can think of specific ways in our own lives that we might follow that same pattern to fall into sexual temptation. And it says, finally, all at once, he goes with her. Emotion has finally overcome reason such that he throws out reason to the window and he follows only his most basic instincts. And what happens immediately in the text is that the language turns from sexual imagery to that of hunting. It says, Now he has been caught and killed. He acted according to his most basic animal instincts and he met the same fate as an animal. Notice also that how closely the language used to describe lady adultery is, uh, is compared to the way that the devil is compared or described in 1 Peter chapter 5. It says she lies in wait. She's at every corner. She seizes him. The devil is described as one who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. I want to zero in quickly on one particular phrase, the words that she uses to convince him. She says, I have come to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I think this points to something we all experience. And that is this deep desire to be seen, to be known, to be loved, to be wanted by another person. We all have that deep desire in our hearts. Something that my wife and I have observed among our peers in the past who we have seen fall into this is that when we talk to them and they try to justify their actions, there is never a sense that they are merely doing this based on physical pleasure. The phrase we most often have heard is how could a relationship where someone loves me this much and knows me this well possibly be wrong? What happens is that they finally got the love, the affection, the affirmation that they wanted, and that overturned their convictions in regards to sexuality. And so the only way for you and I to resist the same thing happening to us is to be loved, to receive a perfect love in Christ. Augustine said that my weight is my love. Wherever I go, my love carries me there. The only way that our loves will be rightly ordered so that we do not fall to sexual temptation is if we are loved perfectly by Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who doesn't just see the curated image that we present to the world or on a date or on social media. He knows all of our deepest thoughts, all our longings, all our desires, even the ones that are contrary to his will And what does it say in Romans 5 that he demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Christ doesn't say change, be sexually pure and then I'll love you. He empowers you to change and to resist temptation. Christ is the one who resisted the temptation of the devil in the wilderness by the word of God and then unites us to himself so that we might do the same. The only way that we will stand firm is if our hearts are anchored in that love. Finally, and much more quickly now, he gets to the will and he, he concludes by saying, and now he's pleading with our son, his son, let not your heart turn aside. What I think he wants, us to sh- wants to show us here is that we often think that it's a linear process. We think certain thoughts, and so we feel certain emotions, and then we act in certain ways. But actually, the way that we act has the propensity to affect the way we think and the way we feel. Augustine says, For in truth, lust is made out of a perverse will, and when lust is served, it becomes habit, and when habit is not resisted, it becomes necessity." There's this compound effect between meditating on God's word, treasuring in our hearts, and so acting according to his will, that our hearts become more and more enamored with God's love and less and less enamored with the temptation of sexuality. You might be somewhat encouraged to know that one of our church fathers actually uh, mightily struggled with sexual temptation uh, Augustine, who I've referenced a couple times already, uh, writes about this very, very um, uh, transparently in his confessions. He says shocking things like, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. And he, he shares about this, this deep struggle within himself for years and years to be free of this addiction to sexuality. He shares his conversion story, which is shocking. He is in his home and he has finally reached the end of himself with regard to this struggle. And so he stands up from where he's sitting. He tosses his book aside and he storms out of the house. And he's pacing up and down the garden. And he's weeping and he's yelling and he's cursing. And he's so angry and despairing and frustrated that he cannot rid himself of this sexual temptation. He says, then I heard what sounded like a child's game. And I heard the words repeated, tole lege, tole lege, which means, which is Latin for take up and read, take up and read. And so he says, I did the only thing I knew to do. I went and grabbed my Bible and I opened it up and I read the first page that I opened to. And this was the passage he happened upon. Romans 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Augustine says, I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart, all the shadows of doubt were dispelled. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if we strive in our own efforts to capture our minds, to lead our affections, and to act in certain ways apart from putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, all of our greatest efforts at resisting sexual temptation will be for naught. It's when we put on Christ and he unites us to himself that he renews our minds by his word, captures our affections by his self-sacrifice for us and empowers us to resist. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for not leaving us without hope. We ask that you would renew our minds by your word, that we would be faithful and devoted students of your word. And as we meditate on it, that you would enamor us with how much you love us and that you might equip us to resist. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.